find Genesis 37 and put a finger on it because it's this chapter that kind of begins the drama of Joseph. But I don't want to just jump into Genesis 37 without giving you some background, at least some highlights of this book, this book of Genesis. So your fingers at Genesis 37. Let's have your eyes up here and let me talk to you about this book in general. This very beginning book of what we call the Pentateuch. That's kind of a big word, but it simply means five volume work. It's written by Moses and it's actually part of the Old Testament law. Here's some things you may not have known about Genesis. You might want to jot these down. We'll play a little did you know here, okay? Genesis is really all about beginnings. In fact, did you know that the very first word of the Bible is the Hebrew word for beginning? Now, we translated in the beginning, but it's actually one word. It's just the word beginning. And so as the later translators try to put this into some type of Greek language for the... Uh, um, for the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as for our English versions, they thought, well, we need to think of a word that means beginnings. And the Greek word for birth or beginnings is Genesis. It's a different, it's pronounced differently, but that'll work for us Americans. It's pronounced Genesis. So from that, we get the idea of Genesis, which is the Greek word for beginnings or births, which is the translation of the Hebrew word beginnings. So the truth is, Genesis is all about beginnings. All right. In fact, the beginning of, of man is in there. The beginning of the earth. The beginning of woman. The beginning of family. The beginning of marriage. The beginning of sin. The beginning of redemption. The beginning of law and order. The beginning of government. And we could go on and on about all the beginnings in Genesis. In fact, you would be biblically correct if you said, Hey, Todd, I really enjoyed reading the book of beginnings. That'd be very appropriate because that's exactly what it is. It is a book of beginnings. One of the key words in this book is the word account. Now, that's not a real impassioned word. You might read, you know, Ephesians and you hear the word redemption or you read the word, the book of Job and you hear the word trust. But in this book, the word account is a very common and important word because it's used 10 times in 10 significant places. In other words, Genesis is kind of a. A, a book of ten accounts and of their beginnings. So as you're reading through Genesis over the next six or seven weeks, hint, hint, as you're reading over Genesis the next six or seven weeks, look for the word account, would you? Maybe circle it. It's the, it's the start of someone's new beginning, probably. Also, faith um, is a big part of Genesis. It's a common theme. And this only makes sense. Because if someone is starting a new beginning, what would you think would be a very necessary character trait? Faith. I mean, anytime something new comes across our path and, and God calls us to risk, guess what? Faith's integral. So you're going to see faith mentioned a lot in Genesis. We know that Moses wrote Genesis. More than likely, he wrote this in the 40 years of wanderings they did in the wilderness, by the way. I mean, if you were told that a three-day trip now took 40 years, you'd find something to do, too, right? I think Moses thought, I might as well journal. So he wrote Genesis. Also, uh, numbers figure prominently in Genesis. For instance... And I'm not sure why this is, but the Old Testament's filled with numbers that God seems to use in interesting ways. Like the number seven. You know that the very first verse of Genesis has seven Hebrew words. And the second verse of Genesis has 14. Now, now we don't see it that way because of the English translation, but seven's big to God. You know that uh, the world was was made in six days and the rest of the seven, so seven days for the first week. And then we know of... of, um, 
There's other ways that seven is used in the book as well. Ten is a is a big number. There are ten accounts in Genesis. There are ten genealogies mentioned in chapters five and eleven of Genesis. And numbers twelve and forty also seem to be kind of big numbers. Uh, there were twelve sons. There were twelve tribes. There were forty days, uh, forty years. There's just a lot of to these numbers. So as you read through Genesis, I would definitely take note of the numbers and how they figure in prominently. Also. Many of the subjects in these in this first book are recycled in the last book. This is something very intriguing. In the last several weeks I've learned, especially if you take the first three chapters of Genesis, where there's lots about the earth and heaven and man and God. And if you go to the last three chapters of Revelation, you'll find there's a recycling of these subjects. Don't you think it's neat how God bookends his revelation? Genesis one through three in a lot of ways, mirrors Revelation 19 through 21. God is not the author of confusion, is he? As we were told in the epistles, but he is a God of order. And you can see that in how he lays out his revelation. And then lastly, I want to share with you that we are introduced to four people in Genesis. They're called patriarchs. Now, for some of you who have been in church or you've been a believer for a while, that's a a word you're pretty used to. But for those of us, uh, for others who maybe are, are new to the faith, uh, for those who are simply just learning about the Bible, that's a very important word because it signifies uh, someone who was very instrumental to the Jewish nation. There are about four pillars to the Jewish race. There are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And they are talked about extensively in this book. They're called patriarchs. And you might want to keep your ears open for that because not only in New Testament times was the word patriarch uh, used a lot, to Jesus, because they wanted to figure out, hey, how do you connect to our patriarchs, our fathers, Abraham, you know, stuff like that. But you'll hear that today, by the way, with all the Middle East tension and turmoil. You know, the Arabs and the Jews both claim Abraham as their patriarch. So you might want to keep this word in mind. You might want to kind of let it lodge in there because you're going to hear it around. We're introduced to four patriarchs in Genesis. It's this last patriarch, Joseph. That we're going to focus on for a while. That we're going to look at for several weeks. And his story begins in Genesis 37. Now it's a story of uh, intense drama. As you read these 10 to 13, 14 chapters, you'll find an amazing amount of things in there. From uh, temptation towards immorality, um, the desire to have vengeance, um, wrong accusations. I mean... This is an incredible story about Joseph, this fourth patriarch that we find out about in Genesis. In fact, if I were to lay out the drama of Joseph's life, I would say it plays out on the stage of Genesis 37 to 50. And it's revealed to us in five acts. Now, if you look behind me, you'll see that these five acts, I'll lay them out for you a minute. That's going to kind of set the tone for our current series. We're going to talk about each act each week. And we're going to have a really neat time seeing how... Uh, His life and and the progression of his life affects us. But let me just this week give you a quick overview. And then I want to kind of peel back Joseph's life in this overview and show you some things he really dealt with. Okay, but these five acts would be, first of all, that he was trusted with a vision. This is found in Genesis 37. In fact, with your finger there, look at verses five through 11, would you? I'll try to do this somewhat quickly because I want to give you an overview overview. But let me just have you turn to Genesis 37, five through 11. Here's where the vision came to Joseph. It says in verse 5, the first four words, Joseph had a what? He had a dream. 
He tells it to his brothers and it says they hated him. And it's no wonder his dream was basically that he would be in the middle and they would all be bowing down to him. Now, if you've got siblings and you had that dream and you felt compelled to share that the next morning, I imagine you might get some of the same response. Uh, you know, especially if you're not the oldest. So if you're reading this thinking, dude, you know, Joseph, he had a way with tact, didn't he? His timing was impeccable, wasn't it? But God entrusted Joseph with a vision, we see. In fact, we know that he uh, had another dream in verse 9 in which his father and mother and his siblings were bowing down. So not only does he kind of anger his brothers, he kind of gets on his mom's and dad's nerves. In fact, look at verse 12 of Genesis 37. It says that his, excuse me, verse 10, 11, his father actually rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Well, your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you and And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. It's an interesting phrase there in verse 11. It almost indicates that on the surface, he was kind of keeping the family peace. Like, Joseph, quit sharing those dreams. You're just bringing a lot of dysfunction and disunity to our family. And by the way, that wasn't hard. You know, there were four moms in this family of 11 brothers. There were some daughters as well. We know that Abraham... Made some mistakes and had two sons. I mean, Genesis is filled with dysfunction. All right. And in the middle of all this, it's neat to see God's hand just just covering all of that. And boy, that doesn't bring great hope to you and me. I'm in the middle of my dysfunction sometimes. I'm like, God, with, with the stupid things I've done and do, what can you what can you do with this mess? And yet God has a unique way of reaching down in the middle of my mess and being God. Amen, church? And you can take great hope in that, too. So in this, in this dysfunctional family unit, God reveals to Joseph a, a vision of what his life would eventually be, of the path he was to be on, and he was to be faithful to that. God entrusted that to Joseph. Now, I want to take a, a detour here and just kind of share something with you. A lot of us think, well, the dreams are what made the brothers mad. And that's textually true, but there's another component of this I want you to be aware of. If you add to the fact that he was sharing his dreams, along with the fact that he was wearing the tunic, you get the real impression that Joseph made no bones about the fact that he was the next heir in line. You've heard of the coat of many colors, right? That's actually a misnomer. It's actually a tunic of longer length. It's really a a more biblical, uh, textual way to word it. It's a richly ornamented coat. Now, I didn't mean to blow all of your VBS memories. I'm sorry about that, okay? I know you're thinking 12 stripes, rainbow coat, but the truth is, it was a tunic. All of them had tunics, kind of outer garments. And Joseph's was longer. And it probably had things around the end of it, nice little, you know, things on the fringe. It probably had extra beads. It was just a much more decorated tunic. And so when he and it was longer, indicating that he was going to be the heir, not Reuben. Now, if you wonder why that is, two reasons. One is Joseph may have been the 11th born. But he was the firstborn by his dad's real love. I told you about dysfunction, right? This book's filled with it. If you recall the trickery of Laban and how he worked in Joseph's life and caused tons of problems. Well, Joseph is the firstborn of the woman that that Jacob really wanted to uh, marry. That didn't work out. And so I don't know all about that stuff except that when Joseph was finally born, I think in his heart, Jacob said, you know what? He's the real firstborn. And that's favoritism that's not healthy. And it caused a lot of problems. So he gave this extra nice tunic 
this extra long garment to Joseph. Imagine walking around when you're the 11th sharing dreams and wearing coats indicate I'm first. Can you see the strut going on there? Can you imagine how the other ten felt? Add to that this, that Reuben also committed a sexual sin with Jacob's, one of Jacob's wives' handmaids. If you get all that, good luck. And because of that, I think Jacob also said to himself, you know, Reuben, you may be biologically first in line, but because of your sexual sin, because of your inability to really be trustworthy, and because of the fact that Joseph's the, the firstborn by Rachel, you know, I think all of that combined to Jacob's decision to give this longer, more ornamented uh, tunic to Joseph. So you put all that together and you can get a real feel for these verses, can't you? He's sharing his dreams. He's wearing the coat and his brothers are hating him. We'll say more next week. But that was what God entrusted with him. This vision of what his life would be, of how he would be the next patriarch. Not only did God trust him with a vision, but we know in Genesis 39 that that apparently God trusted him with a household as well. Genesis 39 is a story of Joseph and Potiphar. Can I ask you to look at verses about 20? Uh, look about verse, uh, actually verses 2, 3 and 4 of Genesis 39. It says here that the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. and He lived in the house of his Egyptian master and his master saw the Lord was with him. And the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant. In fact, Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. That's a pretty large amount of stuff. He oversaw the man's estate. He must have been somewhat trustworthy, wouldn't you say? Especially if Joseph was a foreigner. This is an Egyptian. Yet he said, you know what? I can still trust this guy enough that he's not going to take advantage of me. So Joseph was trusted with a vision, then a household, then he was trusted with a prison. We won't go into the whole story now, but he ends up in prison. And the Bible says in about verse 20 or 21 of this same chapter, Genesis 39, look within your Bibles. It says that he became a real favorable and he showed, it was shown kindness and that the prison warden really began to trust Joseph. Look at verse 22. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. That brings a whole new meaning to like, you know, the prisoners are running the prison. I mean, I'm not sure how that phrase goes, but this is actually happening here. Can you imagine if you're the warden? It says in the Bible here that the warden paid no attention. That's an interesting use of Hebrew words, by the way. It's almost as if you said, listen, I'm in charge, but I don't have a clue what's going on. They went that way. It's kind of like that, you know. Can you imagine the warden telling the governor, hey, uh, Mr. Governor, I'm in charge of the prison, but I've got this prisoner named Joseph and he's actually in charge. And it's going great. In fact, I have no clue what's going on. That's called job security, isn't it? But that's the implication of the text. Joseph was put in trust of the prison, even though he was actually a prisoner. So Joseph was trusted with a vision. Then he was trusted with a household. Then he was trusted with a prison. Notice how this is gradually and incrementally growing. Then next, Joseph was trusted with a country. Now, you may think of... Of our own political things when you connect the country and prison. But try not to right now, okay? Here's what I'm saying, guys. Joseph went from prison and his ability to interpret dreams and be faithful to God's call. And apparently the, the, the Egyptian ruler said, Joseph, man, you should, you should be right under me. You should be VP. Look with me. Genesis chapter about verse 39 of chapter 41. 
I'm just kind of giving you a quick overview of the five acts of Joseph's dramatic life. Look at verse 39. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you. And by the way, rabbit trail, watch this. That's going back to a very initial trait that God had given Joseph. Remember that? The ability to interpret and, and have and, and dreams and the vision. What if he just said, oh, man, I did that when I was a kid. I don't need that anymore. I'm grown up now. What if he had forsaken what he got as a kid? He'd have ruined his chance at this opportunity. Hey, hey, teenagers, elementary kids, if you're here, listen very carefully. What God often does in your life when you're young has a great impact upon what you do when you're older. Amen. Why do you think Paul told Timothy, and again, God's Spirit just revealing this to me now, so I want you to listen very carefully. Why do you think Paul told Timothy, let no man despise your youth? So you want to sometimes say to our kids, oh, you know, you'll get over that, or don't worry about that, or that's not God. Sometimes our most sensitive years are when we're young. And God will often reveal to us what really will come to, to fruition and play later to a, to a large degree. Remember Samuel? As a boy laying in bed, and God said, Samuel, Samuel. And the Bible says in that text that he didn't even know the Lord yet. In other words, he had not ever heard God speak. But somehow in his youthfulness, in the innocence of his, of his, of his youngness, God spoke to him. And aren't you glad he did? Because he became the prophet that would rule Israel. Here it is. Uh, vice president of Egypt and still using the things that God had put into his life as a 17-year-old boy. It says here in verse 40 that Pharaoh said, you will be in charge of all my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. That's amazing. What a trustworthy individual to rise from from a family of a dysfunctional family of at least 11 brothers to now vice president of a country of which he really uh, not even belong as far as uh, his nationality. What a story. But it doesn't end there. In our eyes, we think, wow, he became VP. That's where he stopped. No, actually, Joseph had the, the, the vision to see that that platform and that place was all for something even larger, a purpose even greater. Look with me at how Joseph was trusted with the heritage. Look at Genesis chapter 45, would you? Have your finger locate verse 7. This is an amazing verse because so many of us would get humanly minded and we think, hey, I'm vice president. I finally achieved what I was after. But Joseph realized even in that position, there was a reason he was there. Verse 7, chapter 45, God sent me ahead of you. He's speaking to uh, Joseph, speaking to his brothers here. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Hey, guys, my role as VP is far bigger than learning a country. God is entrusted to me. The task of making sure the Jewish nation doesn't die out. Think about that, guys. Are you hearing the text? The Word of God is telling us that Joseph saw his purpose as far bigger than a place or a position, but as one with purpose. And he said in this last part of the verse, I am here to save your lives by a great deliverance. And sure enough, God must have known years back when he sold to Egypt, when he's uh, undergoing false accusation, God must have known, I've got to get Joseph into a place of prominence so that when there's famine and the Jews are about to die out, he'll be able to save them. And the lineage can continue. One of the great patriarchs, 
was in a position of great power in Egypt so that he could actually reach back, save those who are about to be starved to death. And the line continues. God's omnipotence and sovereignty is awesome, isn't it? We're going to see a lot of that as this is laid out. The story of Joseph from being trusted with a vision all the way to being trusted with a heritage. And that's kind of what we see about Joseph from these chapters. There's some other information I want to share with you, too. So so keep your brains on and I want you to follow me in this. There's there's other facts that give us insight into Joseph. OK, for instance, you know that there is more written about Joseph in Genesis than there is Abraham. Now, each character has 14 chapters, which is kind of a takeoff of the of this number seven again. But watch this. If you were to take the words and count them out. There's 25% more information about Joseph than there is Abraham. Now, we think of Genesis and we think Abraham, but truly Joseph was a very instrumental patriarch in the, in the timeline of the Jewish nation. Oddly, in light of all of that information, there is hardly anything about Joseph in the New Testament. In fact, you know, Jesus Christ never mentioned Joseph. There's only four references at all in the whole New Testament. So he's almost like this pillar in the background. In addition, Joseph is one of the few teenagers mentioned in the Bible. There's a handful of them. Joseph's one of them. The Bible says clearly he was 17 when all this started. Joseph is also um, the only, one of the only ones in the Bible of which nothing negative is ever recorded. When you read about Peter, and you know he kind of had a tongue problem, right? You read about Abraham, he lied about his wife and said she was his sister. You read about other characters and you and you, you can identify with their humanity. I mean, I can. I'm like, man, I've made mistakes and they have too. But with Joseph, there's no recording of anything negative about him at all. Which is kind of why I believe that Joseph is a type of Christ. Now, that's a big word because it's used to describe something to you that's, I'm not just saying an analogy. A type is an actual theological term. And let me explain to you this very carefully. A type is... It's something that we see in the Old Testament in like a in like picture form. But then in the New Testament, it becomes a reality. And I believe that Joseph is the is the type, the uh, early um, kind of like picture of what Jesus will be like. Let me give you some reasons why. Uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers. Jesus was sold by his friend Judas. Joseph was in prison between two criminals. Jesus was on a cross between two thieves. Joseph is a picture of someone abased, falsely accused and humiliated, but rising to exaltation and then showing mercy. Jesus Christ was hung on a cross, falsely accused and left to die. Much like Joseph, hey, leave him in the water, cistern, and let him die, let him rot. But just like Joseph, Christ was falsely accused and left to die, but three days later rose. And at the end, we know that he offers mercy to those who will believe. You see, there's a lot of of similarities. In fact, Arthur Pink, in his book, Gleanings in Genesis, which is a a really good book if you've got a lot of long nights. Uh, It's a great book. Arthur Pink's an old theologian that's just really good. He actually has 101, 101 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Now, now, I say that to you because this, guys, listen very carefully. It is not our intent that you learn about Joseph 
and become like some Joseph guru on the Discovery Channel. I mean, that's not our goal here, okay? Our goal is that you learn about characters in the Bible and that you learn about the Bible so that you know what God wants to do in your life. I want you to learn about Joseph and then let the Spirit of God begin to work in your life and say, Hey, this is what Jesus was like too. And and then let the character of Jesus be birthed in us more and more. As we see how Joseph lived, we too will follow suit so that we can be more like Jesus. Are you with me? Man, there's a whole lot more than facts going on here. For these next several weeks, we want to equip you, as Paul said in the epistle to Timothy, to do every good work, to be Jesus to the folks around us, to live with your arms outstretched, smile on your face and your mouth open and say, hey, there's a God and and he loves you and and to build relationships with people around you so that they'll know also of the great hope within you. That's our goal as we look at Joseph. When you hear all this about Joseph. And you hear all this about Genesis. When you, you take all these facts, you put them in the bowl and you get a blender and you mix them all up. You say, okay, why would God trust Joseph with so much? I mean, put all this stuff together, Todd. I'm left with one question. Why? What made him so different? It's a good question. I think if you took all those facts and that information and you boiled it down to one statement, these 13 or 14 chapters, I would say that the reason... That Joseph could be trusted was because he trusted God. In fact, will you just jot this down? God could trust Joseph because he knew Joseph trusted him. Now, you may think that's a simple concept. You're like, Todd, that's, uh, that's pretty common or obvious. But you realize how often we miss this. We want God to open up doors for us. We want God to give us, and I use the phrase, larger platforms or greater opportunities. We want God to really trust us with much. Because he says in the Bible, if you've been entrusted with few things, I will entrust you with many things. That's a common principle. And we want that, but we miss the very first requirement. That before God will ever trust us, watch this, we have to trust God. You see, I think Joseph's life looks different depending on which side of the shore you're on. If you're on heaven's shore, then you're saying this. Let's say you're in heaven. An angel or God or something. You're saying, Joseph, will you trust me? You're in a pit and your brothers are turned against you. Will you trust me? Okay, Joseph, you're out of your own country. You're in a strange land and now you've been falsely accused. Joseph, will you trust me? Hey, Joseph, it's going to be a long day in prison. Will you trust me? And on and on through his life, from heaven's perspective, it's like, Joseph, will you trust me? But if you're on earth's shore looking up, perhaps you're saying, God, uh, do you trust me? I mean, you know, I'll be faithful, God. I'll do the best I can. Why are you giving me this to deal with? Do you trust me? And, hey, God, what's going on here? And so we're asking God, hey, what's happening? And. And why this? And why this opportunity? And, but God's one of your trust. I think there's, they're both in play here. And here's how I think it works. As we show God at various points in our life that we trust Him regardless. You listen, church? That we trust Him regardless. Then His character begins to be deployed in us. Because God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's everlasting. So as we say, you know what, God? 
in spite of what I see, hear, feel, or think, your word is true and I trust you. As we do that, God says, oh, that's awesome. You know what? Since you since you'll trust me that much, I tell you what, why don't you just carry this load as well? And he trusts us with more. That's what happens. Luke says it in 16.10. Whoever is faithful or trustworthy with a few things, God will entrust them with more. Why does he entrust them with more? Because with a few things, they've proven to be very trustworthy. I like the passage in 1 Corinthians best of all. It says, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now listen to this church, listen very carefully. That verse, 1 Corinthians 4.2, is written more uh, to pastors and those given a charge uh, over the, the church and to present the gospel. We're called stewards or under rowers. And so this verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, is actually written probably more to, to your elders and myself who are, who are to row to the next shore safely. We cannot be sidetracked by false doctrine or cunning noises or itching ears or per, persuasive people. We have to keep our eyes on the strict message we've been given, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've got to row that message safely to the next shore. That's our job. We've got to be faithful. So it only makes sense if God's requiring that out of your church leaders. That he would like that for, your, for his church to be found faithful. To be trustworthy. With the gospel. With his message. With our relationships. Are you with me, guys? Trust is a common denominator among those who are used by God. Both ways. They trust God in times and like, man, how are you getting through that? I just trust God. Remember Job? Though he slay me, yet I will, say it with me, trust him. And then later, at the end of Job's life, what happened? Job received double what the devil had taken away. Now, I'm not promising you double paychecks and double kids right now. That's not my goal. It show you a principle in play here. That God does honor his word and his principles. And if we're faithful then he responds in like manner. That's the reason Joseph was so trusted. Because he trusted God. We're going to see that played out over the next several weeks. I'm sure that you're here this morning thinking to yourself, Todd, I'd love to have a life like Joseph. I'd love to be able to say, my life played out in five acts, and the end was a place where God had trusted me, and I was able to have great impact upon people. We'd all love that. You ever thought to yourself, why it doesn't happen more? Why do people get sidetracked from that? Why do folks start out with good intentions only to be detoured or deterred? Do you know that I think in Joseph's life we see three traps, three reasons that more folks don't end up like Joseph? As I close, I want to share this with you. I want you to take these down, okay? Here's three enemies of trustworthiness that you're going to face this week. I'll wrap up with this because I'm, this is kind of an overview, but I want to show you these real quickly. As you leave, you're thinking, man, I want to be like Joseph. I'm going to dig into Genesis. I'm going to learn about his life, and I'm going to be like Jesus. I want everyone to learn, but watch out because there's some traps along the way. Joseph saw every one of them, and you will, probably in the next 48 hours, experience the same traps. Enemies of trustworthiness. I think the first one is what I call the trap of impatience. And we see this in... The beginning part of, of uh, Genesis 37. We won't read all the verses, but as you know, Joseph was 17. He had been given two dreams from God. Can you imagine being 17 
and a vision of what your life was going to be like, kind of laid out before you what would happen, and then having to wait for that to unfold? I know where I would have been. I'd have been, hey, God, I'm 17. Can you have that done by 18? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Man, you'd have been there too. We're kind of impatient people. We're a microwave society. We don't like waiting. And yet, listen church, listen very carefully. It's in the furnace of faithfulness that God does His best work. In fact, there are no microwaves with God. Remember Moses? He wanted to run ahead, didn't he? When he realized the deliverance was going to come, and I think in his heart Moses thought, good night, they're treating God's people this way. I'm in a position of authority to do something, so God, how about me and you take care of it? I got the first one. Bam! You know, and I'm not sure it's a gun, of course, obviously, but you know, I'm just kind of being a little creative with you. He takes out one Egyptian. Okay, one down, 14 million to go. See, Moses' plan wouldn't really work. So what does God do? God takes him out of the palace and into the desert. And how long is he there? Forty years. It's almost as if God said, Moses, I have a plan, but I need you to just kind of uh, wait for me. So he's like, you know, has to put Moses in the desert. How many of you don't raise your hand, but how many of you have often found yourself in a desert? Because God needed you to wait. So he could, quote unquote, catch up with you. Let me tell you, this is very personal to me. As I look at you guys this morning, I think to myself, and this is very personal, very transparent, but it's okay because we're a family and I know we have a lot of love for each other. But I look at this church. And I'm glad that this church didn't come about when I thought it should have come about. For First Sunday Church probably would have been birthed falsely seven or eight years ago. Excuse me, probably, yeah, that's about right, I guess. I'm not a good mathematician. But back in 98, I really wanted to pursue a church birth in Ankeny. You know, we're calling it church birth now. No more church plants. We don't get on that stuff, right? It's church birthing. It's a lot of work, isn't it? If you missed last week's message, you might want to catch up on that phraseology we're using. But the authorities in my life at that time, it just wasn't right. And I could either buck up at that. And start a church in spite, which is never a good foundation. Or I could be patient and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but you know a whole lot more than me. And so my wife and I chose to wait. And you know what? I'm really glad God caused me to wait. Because I'm not going to lie to you. I probably didn't want to wait a whole lot. I was kind of. Getting behind the horses ready to take off. But God had a much better way to do it. Now look around, look around these people. And how God birthed this church in His time with His people. And the folks that have been saved and baptized and have come to know Him. The folks that have grown in their small groups. You know what? I'm like, God, man, I'm sure glad you did this in your time. Are you with me? In fact, if you were part of our church plant, if you were here when we first began this church, would you stand? We had some of the eighth. I want to see if you're here. If you're here as part of our church plant team, will you stand? Okay, stay standing. I know you're a little embarrassed, but that's okay. Just stay standing. Now, all you folks see to look around. Uh, be glad that uh, these guys were willing to wait. They may not even know all that information. 
But if we'd have rushed ahead, I wonder if we even met you guys, what God would have done in your life. I'm just glad we waited. Now, all you folks stand, look around. Aren't you glad we waited? Look at the folks around you who've come to Christ. Look at the brothers and sisters around you who, are, who call this their home, who we link elbows with and arms with. Aren't you glad we waited? So I want to give glory to God that his timetable is always best. And the church should respond by saying, Amen. Thank you, folks. You can be seated. Hey, you know what? Don't run ahead of God, okay? Don't run ahead of God. When you do, you'll prove yourself untrustworthy. Your plan will be more important. That doesn't mean that at times there aren't risks. And that at times we don't have to sometimes call people out and say, listen, the time is right. But if it's not right, if God's not given the green light, please don't forge ahead. But if it is right, then by faith start a new beginning. Much like Genesis teaches us. The trap of impatience is waiting to, to just get us and make us untrustworthy, so to speak. But the, the heart that waits on God, as we sang about, in the end, they will walk and not faint. They shall run and not be weary. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. In fact, I see Joseph's life as almost a... An applicational fulfillment of Isaiah 41. You know? Joseph waited on God, and sure enough, he mounted up with wings like eagles. Here's another trap that I want to tell you about real briefly. Joseph endured, he waited on God, but also he avoided the pull of enticement. In Genesis chapter 39, when Potiphar's wife wanted to get her hands all over Joseph, and by the way, the Bible says clearly Joseph was well-built and good-looking. I tend to believe Potiphar's wife was probably a a gorgeous babe as well. So you get all these hormones in the same room. That's a tough situation. And in fact, the Bible says that day after day, she kept coming at Joseph. Hey, Joseph, have sex with me. Hey, Joseph, let's go behind my husband's back and commit adultery. Hey, Joseph, sleep with me. And he kept resisting. Finally, one day she puts her hands on him and says, Hey, Joseph, it's me and you, baby, now or never. And the Bible says he left his tunic. I'm not sure if it was the same tunic or not. But he just discarded his coat and he ran. You know why? Because he knew that lust... Watch this, guys. Watch this. Lust destroys trust. And I think Satan was in the background hoping to cause an immoral failure. A moral failure in the life of Joseph. Cause him to sin uh, in a moral way. To bring immorality into play. And if he could get Joseph to sin, watch this, guys, just watch this. What if, hey, uh, Potiphar's wife conceives, and now we've got another son to deal with. Remember Ishmael and Isaac? And all the conflicts as a result of that? What if Satan would have gotten to Joseph, and we've got a, a son through Potiphar's wife? I mean, the lineage gets all messed up again, and Satan laughs in the background. But aren't you thankful that in the midst of passion and lust... Joseph ran. You can call me chicken all day. But if lust is on my heels, I'm going to run as hard as I can. Amen. Paul said, Timothy, flee youthful lust. And men, I want to talk to you for just a second. Men, learn a lesson from Joseph. That lust will destroy trust. And you're asking your wife to come back from almost an irreparable 
um, amount of damage. When you have moral failure, when a man proves to his wife and, uh, and shows untrustworthiness, there's forgiveness, yes. Can God restore? Yes. But I'm speaking to you from man to man as a human. I've sat with wives and husbands who've been through this. It's almost an impossible journey for a woman to feel because she feels like she's been replaced by a picture. Pornography. Immorality. Whether it's in print or the Internet. Guys, you are playing with fire. And can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned, the Bible says? Why do you think he says run? He doesn't say, listen, here's six steps. Here's a way to deal with it. He says, hey, get out of there. And most men, watch this, are too chicken to run. I just won't click on it. I'm going to give you some good advice here. If the Internet is a constant source of temptation to you, get rid of it. You can think I'm a caveman like the guys from Geico. You can think I'm out in left field, but I'll tell you something. Your marriage is far more important than your access to 24-hour news or to an email. Man, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, write a letter. Buy a stamp. But if, if lust is, is really working at your doorstep and you're fighting day after day after day, it may not make the battle go away, but hey, at least it will take you off the, the front lines. Get rid of it. Run. Because I've been in situations where a man has revealed to his wife major information about lust issues and pornography issues, even affair issues or, or even possibilities. And by the way, it does happen. Men and women are trying to check each other out, by the way. It happens in the office place. It happens in the work world. It happens in the places you know about. Don't kid yourself. Adultery is not something that just happened years ago. It happens today. And lusting and roaming eyes are out there. If that's where you find yourself, please, for the sake of your marriage and your kids and your relationships, run. And cut lust off at its legs. Hit the high road. Your marriage, your faith, your integrity is far more important. And Joseph shows me an interesting lesson. That you know what? There is a trap out there of enticement just waiting for me to bite at it. And typically it's like one of those traps, like a rat trap. You bite at it and it cuts you off in the neck. The truth is, this is most of life. Enticements versus entrustments. And church, as things cross your path every day, you should ask yourself, is this an enticement or is this an entrustment? Remember, enticements look nice, sound nice, feel nice. And often you think, man, this is pretty cool. But the end is awful. When you see enticements happening, I just want to encourage you to follow in the path of Joseph. And hit the trail out of town. There's one more trap I think we see in the life of Joseph that helped him keep his trustfulness. And that is, he avoided and said no to the lure of revenge. Well, I can relate to these first two because I have a quick mouth and a really aggressive type A personality. And I'm very impatient at times. And as a man, I I'm, I'm understand some of those same temptations. 
Watch this. This one here would have been the hardest to deal with. You know that? Because can you imagine being face to face with all the folks that wanted to kill you and put you down and, and do away with you and suddenly here the dream is coming true. They're actually bowing down because they think you're one of these Egyptian rulers. Man, I would have been like, hey, and stay bowed down while I come and kick you one time. You know, I've been doing that probably, right? I mean, Joseph could have vindicated himself in his own way. Man, that temptation had to be like sweet revenge. But he said no to it. And Genesis uh, 42 through about chapter 50 tells us about the process of Joseph not looking behind to make things right on his own terms. And by the way, that's what revenge is. It's making things right on your terms. But Romans says, do not avenge yourself. For the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But it doesn't seem even, Todd, it's not fair. I don't like giving mercy. Take it up with God. The New Testament teaches that we're to respond just like Joseph. And the call of revenge in our culture is sweet. Just watch the headlines. You see it this week with Imus and his quick mouth. And then the basketball team that allowed that to settle in on their conscience. And then all the media who respond to that, they're wanting revenge. They should make it right. And I've often wondered, why did that comment stick? I get criticized every week, so do you. I don't care about it. Doesn't mean it's true. Who cares? I've never have figured that whole situation out. But, you know, it's interesting. They're only to make things right based on their terms. The Bible says, you know what? God will take care of those matters. It'd be refreshing to see some people in our culture not be offended by every single word that comes out of somebody's mouth. Not try to make sure they make it right and sell the score. I just heard this week of a little league team in Cincinnati. A little league park, in fact. They have outlawed chattering. You know, I'm about, I'm about, I'm about to swing. The little league president said they can do no more chatter because it may make the batter feel like he has to swing. I'm like, well, that's the point. We want him to swing. But he said the, it may make the batter feel like he can't swing. That would offend him. And then he may turn and hit the catcher. I'm like... We'll punish the kid for hitting the catcher. Don't punish the team for chattering, but they've outlawed all chattering on the whole league now. So you're out in shortstop going, I guess staring, you know, thinking, swing, swing. I don't know what you're doing. I'm thinking, man, where's the fun of baseball? You can't get some guy to swing at a bad pitch. But you see what I'm saying? We've got to make sure everything is right and even. Everything's got to be settled. I'm thinking to myself, good night. And you, you take this as logical end, and you'll have people every single day fighting to to avenge themselves and get revenge and make it even. That's not our job, church. So I call upon you to avoid and resist the lure of revenge, the pull of enticement, or the trap of impatience. And as you do, you'll be showing God every single day, Lord, I trust you. I don't know why I'm in the, shape, the situation I'm in, but I'm not going to satisfy it in a roundabout way or a wrong way. God, I will trust you. Do you trust God this morning for where you are? With your marriage? Do you trust God? I know we're going to look at how God should trust us. We're going to see all the ways we can really come through for God. But this morning I'm starting by asking the more more important fundamental question. Do you trust God? With your money? With your unsafe spouse, 
You've been praying 20 years for them. I know it. They'll never listen. It sure seems that way, but do you trust the heart of God that He doesn't want anyone to perish? So will you keep praying? Maybe there's families who uh, can't have children. And in our church, that's probably something that comes before you a lot. And it's difficult, I know. Do you trust God? Maybe there's families who are men and women who, in their wilder years, sowed the roads and they've got a marriage or two under their belt. But they've become a Christian lately. And you're thinking, how do I work all this blended stuff out to follow God now? We'll help you with that. But do you trust God? I mean, this is the this is the question today. Do you trust him? It's about what you see, know, feel or think. Do you trust him? That's the question to answer when that is a yes, when that's a, a blanket. Yes. Then God begins over time to say, OK, great. Now, I'll trust you with this and then I'll trust you with this. But none of that happens until we, first of all, trust him. I pray this morning you will leave these doors. Resist impatience, immorality, and revenge. And trust God. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please?